Hey everyone, welcome back to the Poor Pearls Almanac. I'm Andy, and today I have a wonderful conversation to share with you. I'm joined by Ken Asmus, the man behind Oikos Tree Crops, someone who has contributed extensively towards the future of perennial crops through his dedication and 40 plus years working on his small farm in Michigan. The purpose of the episode was to talk about oaks and oak breeding, but it's so hard to chat with Ken about one plant because he's got so much going on and is such a wealth of information. We end up talking about sunchokes, beech plums, chufa, river cane, tuberous pea, and a number of other plants, and we explore the idea of plant breeding from a wider scope, intergenerationally. How do we ensure our work doesn't get lost as we continue to develop resources? What does it mean to create an infrastructure where future generations will be able to continue the work he started, and how do we honor the work done by generations prior? This is going to be a reoccurring theme throughout this season on the podcast, so I think this is a really great way to start our interviews for this series. And I think you all will really enjoy this conversation. As always, let us know what you think and give us a review on iTunes if you can. Ken, thanks for coming on. I've been aware of what you've been doing for research for and breeding for at least over a decade now. You are probably one of the most diverse people in the whatever you want to call it the food forest yeah. space or whatever yeah i guess him the amount of things that you've gotten into that i've seen no one else talk about is just wild so please introduce yourself and uh some of the work you've done sure well i actually got my start from my family's tree farms we had christmas tree farms if you've ever pruned a christmas tree and done it thousands of times in a day you begin to look at the ground and you see all this interesting plants around the Christmas trees. And I thought, boy, these are kind of interesting plants. I need to figure out which plants those are. And in that process, I kind of discovered this, that there's a lot of edible food plants within any given environment. And I began to kind of go on camping trips and so forth and taste test all these things. And that kind of, that kind of kept with me when I started the nursery after college. And I began to experiment even more with different types of fruits and nuts. And then when I bought my farm in, in the early 80s, it gave me kind of a laboratory that I could bring things there and test and grow and just to see how things grow under cultivation. And so it was a fun thing to do, really. I wasn't trying to, you know, hardcore <laughs> nail out yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And the nursery, actually, having a nursery gives you kind of a, just a very wide open thing. Well, I'll try to grow this and try to make it available to other people. And sometimes that was successful and sometimes it wasn't. Um, but it was fun to do. You know, you learn about nature and you learn about life and everything else. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you've, you've put some decades under your belt, which I think gives you a different perspective than somebody who's got a bunch of, you know, plants they're working on that are eight, 10 years old. Like you've seen these things kind of really develop and yeah. even work with some of the the seedlings from those plants that you initially planted and kind of seen how that evolves, right? That's that's correct. So in some ways, the inspiration from that came from what's called geographical races uh, with pine trees. You know, like a, a scotch pine tree may have several geographical races that are in certain mountain ranges, they grow like this. In other mountain areas, they may grow like this. And then the Christmas tree industry would say, oh, well, we want this shape of tree because it's nicer for Christmas trees. 
And I always had this thought, geez, I wonder if you could make other quote unquote geographical races and then kind of spread them out and grow them in some way. And so that was kind of the impetus of that. And I was able to do that with oaks, you know, right off the bat. And it's only because I was really interested in oak trees. I thought they were kind of a cool tree. There's so much diversity in oaks. You can't, it's hard to tell them apart sometimes. So that's what was kind of interesting too. Yeah. Yeah. Oaks are, I think there's more varieties of oaks in North America than any other species on the continent. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the fact that there's so much genetic diversity that we are really not tapping into as we think, you know, the way we think about like corn breeding, you know, it's like, oh, we have to, you know, there's this long history of trying to track down all these races of corn because we need those genetics. And it's like, well, we also have, we have these oak trees with like unlimited genetics, basically uh, just sitting there in our backyards, quite literally. Yeah. And we're not doing a whole lot with them. No. And you know, the, the whole point of this oak thing kept hitting me on the head over and over again. But one of the things I discovered was this network of people that collect acorns for the nursery industry. And that was really kind of just retired folks and um, other people, occasionally some young people that wanted to make a few extra bucks somewhere. It varied quite a bit on who was collecting that. It would be like a housewife living in a trailer, but it'd also be a PhD candidate for neurophysiology going to University of California. So you have this huge variation of people that like to just collect acorns or maybe they want to make them available. And for some reason, they were attracted to me. Of course, I'd buy them from them. But a lot of times they just did it because it was an enjoyable hobby. You know, I remember an electrician that sold me quite a few acorns from a park in Pennsylvania. And uh, excuse me. And uh, he was doing it with his son. And the idea is the son would make some money and he'd save the money. And, you know, it was kind of an enjoyable hobby for many people. And for me, I got a chance to grow out thousands of seedlings from that. And you could see this beautiful variation. And then sometimes I would go, well, I'm going to, you know, tie a little ribbon around this tree and I'm going to plant it out in my orchard. And uh, that's kind of one one of the methods I use for getting that diversity. And yes, we there's so much. Yet, what are you going to do with that? You know, <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know, and I still am a little confused about it. But the idea is then to create a crop from from a oak is people have been doing since a long, long time ago, you know. And now you're yeah. trying to think about it in terms of an orchard crop. And that that's quite challenging and it involves a lot of a lot of, of research and probably money from individuals to work on it. I don't think it'll ever end up in a in much in in a university type of setting, but it has landed there a few times. So you yeah. never know. <laughs> yeah, and you know what well, the thing about acorns is that in terms of like a nut that you can crack open, it's such an easy, high, like large nut to to work with compared right. to like you know black walnuts or hickories, which are delicious in their own right, but are, I mean, I'm sure you've cracked plenty of, you know, if, if I handed you an acorn or a hickory and I said, which one would you rather crack open? It's going to be the acorn every time, you know what I mean? (laughs) And uh, that, that just seems like a no brainer. It's like one of the most important plants for the landscape. And it's so easy to access in terms of like getting the, the nut meat out of it. Yeah. Yeah. It comes out whole. 
It has a thin shell. It probably could be used for many different things. And it, and you know, there is a movement now with various uh, folks that are, you know, beginning to incorporate it into food and learning how to process it. You have that aspect of it. Then you have, um, you know, the breeding part of it is kind of mixed with people that say, oh, you could have varieties and then others saying, well, you know, maybe we could just grow seedling orchards of them and, you know, harvest them almost like a wild crop, like pinion nuts mm. or something, where you just go out every year. And and then others are trying to use the wild crops that already exist, these old trees, maybe they're in a park or somewhere and they're cleaning, you know, they're raking up acorns but that that you know that that whole thing is fascinating to me and i i would one of the things that i really enjoyed doing was collecting the acorns at my farm and then processing them and making a cornbread out of them and then i would give a lecture or something somewhere and i'd bring that with me and uh so i used the betty crocker recipe but i uh it was like three quarters cornmeal or three quarters acorn meal and a quarter corn meal or something like that. And it was quite a delicious bread. People really liked it. So That's awesome. But it was fun to do that. And it kind of does give you an idea of the, the acorn, how it's been used traditionally in a flour type of base product. And then one of my acquaintances, they said, I'm going to make oil from acorns. And this guy owned an oil company that made olive oil. So he had these big presses and all this. And he stored the acorns for so many months. And then he pressed these, I think they were uh, California oaks, Kirkus uh, uh, eye, and he pressed them into an oil. And he said, I said, well, that's fantastic. Thanks for doing this. And he sent me a little jar of oil. And then he says, well, it was great, but I'll never do it again. <laughs> it was quite hard, actually. So, oh, you know, yeah, some, some of this processing thing, it's going to have to work itself out. I met another guy who made, was making, going to make commercial acorn chips. And um, in that process, he got in trouble unbeknownst to him because acorns at that time were listed as a poisonous part of a plant. And, and so he borrowed another chip manufacturer's chip maker. And when he ran them through that and everything was fine, until he got to packaging and he started selling and USDA find them. And then the equipment that was used for the chips got oh, no. locked up for so many months. You know, they couldn't use them because it essentially was poisonous. And, uh, but nowadays you see the attitudes kind of change and they say, well, okay, you can use acorns, but you have to process them. You know, it is safe yeah. to use, but you have to process them. But my, I think going back to this whole idea then becomes how safe are acorns to eat and how can we make sure that that they're delicious and nutritious and they don't have the tannins or anything that would hurt your liver or damage you in some way so yeah yeah there's definitely a lot of questions that still need to be answered yeah and i'll do a quick shameless plug here we are doing through the podcast and our uh, people that listen uh, an acorn a burr oak acorn harvesting project and part oh. of it is people send acorns to us we spent a little bit of money, got a, a tannin testing 
equipment. Oh yeah, uh, I'm I'm not the most qualified person to talk on it, but we we spent the money based on someone else who knew better than I do, yeah. so we can actually say yes, these are the nuts that we've got. This is what their actual tannins are before yeah. we do anything to them, yeah. and then saying, all right, we got 12 acorns, whatever it might be. We tested four of them. The other eight, we're going to go, four of them will sample taste, and then four of them will plant. Oh. So that way we've got all the genetics. We can grow them out like seedlings yeah. and start to like be able to say, we obviously not every acorn is the same, but we have something to work with and some kind of data to actually back it. Yeah. That's a good idea. I should send you samples so you can take a look at those, some of the ones that I think are very good, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that way, again, yeah. you, you have some data to kind of back, like, this doesn't taste very tannin. And it's like, well, yeah, I can actually prove to you, you know, with some some actual data that this is this compared to like, a, you know, I'm sure we'll have some come in that are higher. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you can kind of get that that uh, spectrum of what we're actually looking at and how big a deal it is when you find one that's low tannin or tannin free. Yeah. Or if there really is any that are tannin yeah, free. Yeah, that's or, actually know, a good question. Yeah. Yeah, I don't because know. that's yeah. You'll see people like Sam Thayer recently. Does, yeah, was talking about this tree, uh, bur oak in Minnesota that he was like, "This is tannin free," and it's like, "Well, it, it probably tastes that way, but is it actually?" And like, what kind yeah. of like to your point, what kind of risks are we actually taking if we're consuming this in any volume? Right. That's that's a very good point, and there's actually a um, couple things that people are aware of with fiddlehead ferns, for example. You know, those have that same issue. And um, you really need to get those very clean to enjoy them because they're very tannic. No. And also there's a there's an, a tropical fern where this one culture uses this fern quite a bit for food. And um, they've kind of discovered through various tests that this one type of cancer that is only common there was a result of the consumption of this fern. And it, it has high levels of tannins. Interesting. So there's certain aspects of that that, you know, you really have to think about because you don't want to. And there's other food crops like that. I mean, like potatoes have solanine. And if some pota someone breeds a potato that's high in solanine, you can't release that to the public because people would get sick right away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you can't taste I guess you can't taste necessarily taste solanine, or some people can. Like I'm very sensitive to it, but other people can't really have an effect. Maybe the, their saliva is different or something. And so there's this aspect of, okay, but then then there's the processing aspect too, like how far, how many washes to make something, you know, safe to eat, or is there actually any low low so low that it doesn't matter that you wash it. Yeah. And that that was one of the things that I was always searching for. And talking with others about it, they say, well, it might vary from year to year. And it does seem to vary a little bit from year to year from the same tree. But maybe, maybe not. <laughs> maybe it just no. needed to sit and ripen longer because there are some chestnuts that are like that too. If they ripen later and longer that diminishes and the acorn can be used. But whatever whatever it is, most people just do the blender method. And that one woman, Suella, Suella Ocean, wrote Acorns in Edom from California. She was probably one of the first. She described her experiences in her cookbook. 
And uh, she, you know, she was talking about using the blender method and getting out all the tannins and then making various types of foods from them. And uh, that's probably the most modern day book that came out on it. And then prior to that, there was the Native American tribe. Uh, I forget the name of it. I'm sorry, I forgot. But but from Southwestern California, where they were doing demonstrations on how to process acorns in a you know using ash and grinding and putting it in a stream and bed and so forth. So we know a lot about this, but um, yeah, people are very interested in the new food crops. And acorns was kind of one that I took on early on. It was a, a enjoyable to meet so many people that were interested in that. I would agree. The potential for oaks is just, there's there's a lot there. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad people are getting into it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. One of the trees in particular that you've worked with is Ashworth. Right. So could you talk a little bit about the Ashworth? It's a baroque, right? It's a baroque cross. I guess it, it I guess originally, yeah, if you read the story about Fred Ashworth, you know, he was the forerunner of, of you know, the nursery for uh, Bill McKentley's uh, farm in New York. And uh, so basically he had discovered this on a road coming back and there was a road crew working on something and he picked a bunch of acorns off this one prolific small tree and they were quite delicious. He found them very delicious. So that Ashworth Burrow, that original one along a road, he took back to his nursery. It was grown there for many years. And the seedlings from it, I think, had spread a little bit too in that area. So we're talking like a zone three type, very cold. And then Fred Ashworth happened to know another plant breeder in the Northern Nutgrowers Association. He was he was uh, Miguel Marquez, and my, Miguel had this property in El Paso, and then Fred would occasionally visit him, according to what Miguel told me, because he had a daughter, he had relatives there. And so he eventually got sign wood of that original tree and put it on his trees. He had super alkaline, high volcanic type soil. So he had initially these trees that are multi-grafted that sometimes had dozens and dozens of grafts on each tree. And then he would let those grow out and flower and bag them. And uh, he sent me the acorns from those trees. And that's how I ended up with the Ashworth bur oak at my farm. And the ones at my farm, uh, some of those had kind of hybridized with the white oak. So you can see a little variation in them. But each of the, the two trees that I have that are just amazing is the amount of fruit that they produce, the amount of acorns. It's really heavy. But it also alternates, which is a common characteristic with oak trees. You know, you have one year that's just banner, and then the next year, nothing. That's kind of an issue <laughs> for a crop plant. Yeah. But either way, there's, there's some that have more of a consistent yield from year to year, but not as high. And then, of course, there's frost. Late frost can sometimes affect the pollination. But that Ashworth Burrow, so many people have had it and grown it from St. Lawrence Nurseries as well as other places. It's it's all around. I've seen other trees of it in, in uh, Lansing, Michigan, a few years ago. Someone had planted a bunch of them. So it's a very popular, well-known burrow that was grown for acorns to eat. And then another one that I found out about early on was uh, a forester that was 
Gene Ulrich from Ennett, Oklahoma. And he had kind of, you know, he would occasionally munch on acorns. And then he'd send, he sent me some of these huge bur oak acorns from that region. And I still have those trees now. Some of them are about 60 feet tall or so. That, that in terms of a geographic race, that particular acorn ripens in November, December. <laughs> so it's mm. really late. And they hang yeah. up on the branches and you can see the squirrels going up in there and dropping them. But generally these types of things, farther south you go, you know, you end up with a different ripening period. The farther north, it's a different ripening. But what's fascinating to me is that the, many of these southern oaks are able to tolerate zone five, even though they're from zone uh, eight or nine. So it's really quite an amazing range of adaptability with the oak. Are they keeping their size, the yeah, acorn size? Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. But um, some are smaller than what they were by maybe a quarter. And I think that's because I have real sandy soil. Some of these were collected near river bottom type soil. So mm. yeah. yeah, I know they, they tend to, there's a, I think a sub variety of macrocarpa that's swamp. It's like a swamper oak or something. Yeah. So it must be those guys. Right. That's awesome. You know, there's a lot of research on why the burr oaks are so much smaller north. Yeah. And then you, you know, you think about like climate change and it's like, well, if it is the longer seasons, then that's not really an issue anymore. I'm sure no. the, the length of your seasons are not significantly less than what Oklahoma's were a hundred years ago, 150 yes, years ago. You that's know? correct. Unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. But that also speaks to like the importance of trying to move these trees across the landscape because the climate is changing way faster than these these trees can kind of move on their own. So we do kind of have a responsibility to to help them adjust to this new climate. Right. And you have, you, there's kind of two, some people are for that, some are against it. But I think mm. one of the things that as a crop plant, you really have to look at the full range of that plant's growth, even if it's in... Mm. Mexico, uh, you know, you have to think to yourself, well, wait a minute, if this plant grows here, can it be expanded? And what value is that going to be to the cultivation of that crop plant? And with the big oaks, with the big acorn ones, it, it's funny because I have several from Texas. And um, out of all that group, there's some that are just massive. They're huge trees now, but they've never shed an acorn, you know, never. But I have really? one tree, one tree that's just filled with these large acorns. And a lot of the ones from Illinois, even though that those acorns are actually quite large too, have done very well here. And so, you know, going south, yes, you can, but they're, they're <laughs> farther south you go. You don't, you don't even know why the tree survives, but yet it doesn't produce fruit. I don't know what that is. Maybe I have to wait another 20 years. Mm, but uh, yeah. it's fascinating just from the standpoint of breeding. And, and it actually kind of relates to pecan. You know, you have this long life, this big, huge tree that so amazing and diverse. And you want to figure out, OK, how can we do this and how long will that take? And so my, my thought would be then to have uh, both seedling orchards as well as uh, grafted orchards of many kinds so you could kind of develop that as time went on because there isn't really any place you could do this at other than private some private land somewhere mm. i don't know if 
that that would be the next step is if you could have other other than my farm, <laughs> which everyone is invited to come and visit. I I have no problem with that. But the the idea of having it in other public areas in different regions kind of gives an idea of what you're up against because then you go, oh, here it do, does this and that. And the more data you get, the faster you could create a new crop from acorns. Very fast. You don't have to wait dozens of years for breeding either. That That's yeah. ridiculous. It's already been bred, not just my little dinky thing, but also in the wild. I mean, I have seen trees many, many times uh, that I'm like, good Lord, that is amazing. You know, there's big clusters of acorns all over the branches and the yields are really good. So it's not necessarily need, you need to breed it. It's more or less finding it. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's kind of why we've done this project is yeah. I was thinking, I, I thought about uh, where we're going to be doing some episodes on some of the folks from like the early 20th century, J. Russell Smith, John Hershey, yeah. you know, all those folks. Yeah. And, you know, J. Russell Smith, one of his big things was that like, basically what you're saying that we basically need to have these these co collaborative federal private nurseries yeah. to try to do exactly what you're talking about. And uh, one of the tools that he used with the Northern Nut Growers Association and others, TVA, was this yeah. idea of like contests of like, they're, the tree, like you said, the trees are already out there. Yeah, we just have are. to yeah. find them. Oh, yeah. And the problem, you know, as like you think about like J Hershey's farm, he had all these cultivars, right? Yeah. And they're all great and they're amazing. But I, I mean, I, I wasn't around in the 40s, but I imagine like in the 20s, 30s, 40s when he was doing this, yeah, yeah. that like the access to getting in front of people, like even if it was popular, like maybe 1% of the population was thinking about it. So it's like yeah. you, you probably tapped into only 1% of the potential of yeah. what's out there. So trying to, again, bring these ideas of this stuff is already out there. We just need to find it. And then, like you said, start growing it and, you know, like, trying to make it so it's something we can tap into. I think that's really important and trying to, even if my, gener if I don't see it in my lifetime for future generations to then have this, you know, resilient crop that can feed people, help all these huge ecosystem yeah. benefits, as nice as it would be to be the person who gets to buy acorn flour at the store for the price of like, you know, any other flower. Uh, <laughs> yeah. like I, I know that's not in my lifetime, but it could be in my kids, you know? Yeah. Well, the, you know, you're really looking at worldwide. Um, I think um, you're, you know, you're probably the Spanish equivalent of the, the feeding the hogs with the mast. Baleno trees, as you know, they've developed some varieties for human consumption and then also ones for feeding animals. And so that's probably the farthest along it's got worldwide. But there's mm. probably other cultures, too, that just naturally use the mass for, you know, for various things like the Korea. Some Mediterranean cultures have mm -hmm. use of the acorns for human. Uh, so it's it's spotty, but it's there. But again, I just wish there was more public places where you could see that in some manner or form because it just it kind of it's like an exclamation point because you're taking all these wild the wild germplasm assembling it and making it available to the public in some way so it's not locked up in research mm. i don't i don't like that i don't i don't like things locked up in research and if there's one thing that i try to do is to get to get out what I've created as soon as I can, even if it's not completed, 
It's like, here, you, you take it. <laughs> Whether I sell it or give it away or trade it, you know, I, I'm not really concerned about that as much. But, you know, I, the idea of having these future, like you're talking about future crop in an environment that's not very, you know, it's going to be more and more difficult to grow annual crops in, out west. So I, I think the potential would be to have these new crops tested in some of the most harshest conditions to see, you know, where we can get this new crop mm. started and, and fruiting. You know, I know there's a big movement for established tree crops like pecans and so forth to move those farther north and west and, you know, figuring out the details of that. But then you have, you know, the farmers, the farmers themselves are so hamstrung, they can't be experimenting. It's not, farmer farming is not experimentation anymore. It's a, it's, it's a production. It's got it. It's all production. So I, I often think that, you know, whoever owns their land, and maybe there could be other possibilities for having these research facilities in other private hands. But you're going to need hundreds of them, not just a couple yeah. dozen. <laughs> no, I, I absolutely agree. One of the things that's been really nice about this podcast project is kind of really seeing how my own perspectives based on conversations like with folks like you has kind of evolved my understanding of like what our job is as individuals, like from should we be trying to grow our own food to should we yeah. be collectively trying to like grow our food, food communally or realistically is our job really as a a conductive piece in developing future food systems, which is kind of where I'm at now. And I think this kind of work is so important. And one of the things you brought up earlier, and I, I will, I think this kind of highlights a bigger philosophy is you'd spoken about like, you know, pressing acorns for, um, for oils. Yeah. And one of the challenges, and I'm sure this is something you've experienced and from conversations you've had like these discussions about is trying to make food out of wild stuff yeah. whether it's hickories acorns right right it can be so time consuming oh. black walnuts yeah. and it turns people off from saying that could never be a crop right yeah. like sunchokes right and and then yeah. it's like well yeah you could say the same thing about black beans right like if if we didn't have mass production for black beans That's like true. outside of usually uh like certain cultural groups like most white americans don't buy dried black beans right no. we buy them canned and processed that's basically. true yeah like we we can take that model and apply it to a lot of these foods we have the capacity we have the infrastructure yeah even if we don't have the specific tools yet right right like the same thing with uh sunchokes you could instead of everyone having to have them in a crock pot for 12 hours we could have them pre-processed and you buy them canned or jarred or whatever just like like any other food that needs to be processed similarly yeah and uh it's just a matter of kind of getting there and i i think that is the part that is missing from a lot of these conversations we're all trying to do this all ourselves instead of thinking about the the resources on a bigger scale yeah that brings you to this idea of more of like your philosophy behind your breeding and kind of now having been doing this for 40 years what some of your thoughts are on how you started things you wish you had done differently advice you'd give to younger people that are just maybe where you were in the eighties thinking about, I want to just kind of start breeding these things, collecting them, thinking about what their potential is in the future. Well, you know, when I started, I, I will say this, 
this is fascinating to me and I I'm still haven't really figured it out but there's there's always certain individuals that really loved something they were very and it was like a single crop it could have been just hazelnuts like one person who loved hazelnuts and they wouldn't talk about anything else you know <laughs> I was like man Cecil Ferris was a good example of this and I was like boy this guy loves hazelnuts <laughs> what's the deal with hazelnuts but he he bred them he developed them he just loved to talk about them he had this did this thing in his backyard he was a I think he was an engineer he worked for GM and that was his thing and I met other people that loved apricots they just loved apricots they, that was the only thing they wanted to talk about and I was like well that's kind of interesting they wanted they stuck with something and they they really worked on it back and forth back and forth there was a lot of progress in those individuals because they focused on these these single crops but the one that there's a couple things that came out of that was what happened to them what happened they never did it end up in the public domain somehow it was kind of sad yeah never mentioned in research never mentioned by other plant breeders in commercial settings, it's like just forgotten. And um, it's kind of sad. I thought, you know, here's their yeah. legacy. Now, a couple of them did write books. Maybe they got it in a book or, you know, they did produce that. But it's not as, you know, that's kind of like the story of Pawpaw with Corin Davis. I felt, you know, he worked so hard on Pawpaws. He just loved Pawpaws. And you don't hear his name mentioned really that much. And yet he was one of the original researchers on pawpaw. So I think part of it is, you know, it's great that people, uh, you know, I can provide inspiration for them from the things I've done. And I'm not really holding out a lot of hope for the things I've developed as much. But it's possible then someone would take it even farther and move it along. It's just like that with anything. We're all standing on the backs of giants and we have to acknowledge what we're doing and we're helping somebody else get there and that's how i view my crops you know i'm like okay well you can take this now and do this and even though i'm selling those things now i don't feel that's very satisfying at this point so but i i am doing that and i don't know how much longer i will do that for but i do like that but going back to the beginning i could tell within first 10 years or so i'm like okay this nursery scenario is not profitable and it probably won't be profitable really but i had help with things so and i had a stable home life family life and i was my wife was working so there was a certain level of stability to the whole thing but i thought i know what i could do is i could start a planting and just expand it to seedlings, to seed grown plants, because they're really this. Then you could see this diversity that we're so much in need of today. So if that was a smart idea. <laughs> that was one of my better ideas. Now, the, the worst idea was trying to accommodate these niche markets because they're just so small that you would fulfill them quickly. And that was it. And then it would drop yeah. off, you know. 
So it's like the world's smallest restaurant in many ways. You know, people go, oh, I love going to this restaurant. But then when the owner gets a little crotchety and old, well, that, we're not going to go there anymore. And it's closed now. And we're going to go on to yeah. the next small restaurant. But you can inspire people and work on crops in a very low cost, ineffective way. And probably because of your love for that, you will make way more progress than someone that's getting um, huge research dollars and it's being piled into one spot. And there's a lot of talking heads and people that are on you about what you need to do. And I think part of it is just the love that people feel towards their fellow humans and the plants themselves. They love the plants and the single crop guys that are like, man, I love apricots, you know. <laughs> yeah. And it's just that that whole thing, it just seems to lend itself to progress, actual scientific progress in that field of knowledge, of scientific breeding even though it might not be considered scientific by the person doing it. So anyway, that's my spiel. What I really appreciate about it, you is in a lot of ways, I accidentally found myself doing a lot of the same things as you. Before we started recording, I'd mentioned like, I'm trying to get river cane up here. And like, oh, yeah. that that's something you, you've talked about, like as a difficult plant yeah. to work with. But I think it is going to be really uh, valuable as a, uh, a plant here in the Northeast as climate change continues. Oh, yeah. And, you know, chufa is another one that doesn't get much attention at all. No. And you're one of the few folks that I've seen growing it. Yeah. I, I've seen you talk about sunchokes, like breeding them in terms of like actually cross-pollinating them yeah. to create new cultivars. Oh, yeah. Uh, and again, this is something me and a couple folks I know are doing. Yeah. So it's, Good. I'm just like everything you've done, I feel like I'm kind of going down these same rabbit holes. Yeah. And like my ADHD gets me focused on it, but then I kind of jump to the next thing. Oh. <laughs> So yeah. it's really interesting to see how you've evolved in the stuff you're growing and how uh, you look back at that that kind of work that you've done and the hope you have for those things to continue, which is, you know, I, you've made a really good point that we don't do a good job outside of, again, the, the J. Russell Smiths kind of folks of yeah. actually honoring and remembering the folks that have done this work. And oh, man, it's that, so that, long. That it's, cultivars. Oh, yeah. It's a long list. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just starting to talk about a few of them, and there, more of them are coming in my mind. You know, and there are people like, um, I just thought of Clifford England, even though I've, I've only met him once, but I mean, just amazing collections, uh, repository these folks have. They, You know, that was kind of their hobby. And there were people before him that I met in the Northern Nut Growers that had these huge collections, and then no. sometimes people will, I have one group of guys that have come here a couple of times, but they look up the collections and then they go to the death records, find out where they lived and then go to their home. So yeah. they'll try to figure out where that is and then collect sign wood off something that they're hoping to propagate. Yeah. I, I won't say I've never tried that. So No, no, it's a little elaborate. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you yeah. got time for that? But, you know, they're, the idea then... It ends up in the nursery system, and that's one part that I've been trying to discuss with some younger people. And that, for some reason, that falls on deaf ears often because they have this plan. And I'm like, that plan is not going to work, <laughs> but I'm not that brash about it. But the, it just happens to be, you know, an industry where 
the pricing is such that it's very difficult to you know make a living from it and there's so many different things affecting it's a huge industry so certainly there's a way to make it profitable but the method i used is was is not but there are some aspects of it that would probably work so then you end up you know you're really competing uh, it's very difficult to figure out what you're going to do with those things that you're you're growing yeah that really is where where the nursery industry is if you create a new plant or have something new how is that going to be applied to the public at large and who's going to buy it and use it and is there other things that people would not buy because the pricing is not low enough so yeah. because the way forestry works so you have combination of you know really bad forestry practices that are finally finally you're people are saying this seems like a bad idea you know forestry in general is almost like no one could criticize or scrutinize them and same with conservation practices some of them are just horrible and they'll always be horrible they'll never get better until you know we we jump in and say you need to stop doing that it's not working so that falls on deaf ears but i think part of it is it'll be this rise up of folks like you and uh younger people that will take hold of these crops and apply them it's almost like uh, a type of technology we're going to apply this to this and then we're going to create this which will then create that so so you have yeah. this ground up interest the only thing maybe missing is money i don't know but maybe that will have to come into it to make this happen these ideas happen a giant yeah. conglomeration with a means of fulfilling those goals over a course of a couple decades that's really what you're looking at yeah I, i'm thinking like a land trust model might protect some of those cultivars and also maybe yeah. kind of codify them a little bit without going into that that industry the way you're talking about and allow it to scale up or to yeah. have grown out enough to have yeah. like actual scale to then be applied for production or for food production or whatever it might be yeah but it really is difficult and i i don't really i'm not going to pretend i have an answer because i don't yeah and you brought up a lot of really interesting points you know this idea of like all these stories being lost that you know unfortunately you know like you'd brought up like going to track down like a farm where somebody that was an nnga probably had certain things that we don't know about yeah and there is one site near me that I recently went to trying to track down some hickories that I thought may or may not have come from. They had been in NNGA in the 40s. Oh, yeah. And then they'd, they'd made it a uh, public farm uh, with like a preschool on it. So you can go hiking there and stuff. So I oh, went that's hiking. nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I went there to go kind of check it out. And there are these big old hickories. And I'm like, I bet these are somehow related because they're all on the edge of the farm. They're all about the same age. Oh, but yeah. they're all dead. And I'm like, oh, oh. you got to be kidding me. Yeah. So like they're all just standing dead trees. And then there's young ones popping up that are like 15 feet tall. None of them had any nuts on them. But, yeah. uh, you know, it. there's so much out there that's been lost and so much that's on the brink of being lost. Yeah. That, you know, maybe if I'd been there five years ago, I could have grabbed some nuts. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It really, it speaks to like, 
I think a lot of people on the internet love to throw away or throw around like the term like ancestral knowledge. And like, oh, this yeah. is really what, in some ways what we're talking about is like these, the, the knowledge of these trees, these species, these cultivars, uh, and what they can do for the landscape and for us. Right. Uh, and that can be a really big challenge to try to figure out, like you said, what, what the right steps are for us to protect these plants, protect the, to honor the the giants that stood before us yeah uh, so we're not recreating the wheel in so many ways like i'm kind of doing with you you know doing the same experiments with sunchokes and so on <laughs> uh you know starting from yeah. scratch instead of you know the work that's been done before well some things you can cycle through much faster too yeah you know, and others take you a lot longer <laughs> yeah absolutely especially stuff yeah. that's annuals or short perennials yeah there, there's it's funny you mentioned there was a guy, I think it was last year or so, and they said, oh, it's right across from 7-Eleven on this street, you know, and it's in the median of the of this road, you know. But this guy mm -hmm. obviously owned this property, and they turned it into a road, and it was a two-way road, and they kept the, the hickory there. <laughs> but it's a grafted hickory, so it's kind oh, of – Oh, wow. It sticks out, you know. It's like, you'll see it. <laughs> yeah. But, yes, yeah. So no one else of, will, but you will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, most people just drive by, but the, it's just fascinating to me. Yeah, what whatever happened to those? And there there are some amazing collections here in the United States that people have, and it's kind of fortunate. But the, to me, I'm thinking, well, you know, what is going to be the future of that, and how can more people benefit from from that collection? Because it's yeah. not just a Christmas tree that farm that has been abandoned. You know, it's more than that. It's it's this genetic repository that could be used for something just spectacular. And someone with a vision will f find it maybe and start using it. But the way the system is, the way we have it now, you know, you have the repositories and genetic repositories, and those are those are some are available, some are not. And then you have the USDA seed banks and things. So there's some things, but to me, it's like almost like you want a living collection mm. of oak trees in particular. To me, that seems like that would be just spectacular. Yeah, I would agree. People could go away from that and just be impressed. Like the University of California in Davis has a had a, and I think it's still there and pretty much intact, huge collection of oak trees. And there was a professor there that made this collection by using another oak reader from University of Utah. And he said, you know, we should try to bring all these oak hybrids out west because they'll grow in these incredibly dry locations. And so they, you know, uh, he, they recreated that and there. And the the pictures I got from there were just um, their Polaroids. It was before the internet, really. And uh, I was like, wow, that's fantastic. Look at all those acorns. And it's just a barren field there. And some of the trees, you wouldn't imagine them being able to survive there. These different kinds of shrub live oaks that are just these mm. thick evergreen things. And and once again, you have this genus that just shows amazing diversity and tolerance to bad conditions. And it has an acorn, it has a fruit. I mean, to me, it's like the perfect tree. But the fact that someone someone else recognized that in a university and made a collection, that whole thing is really kind of 
just a random interest. I think a lot of times I don't think nothing is ever planned out with that. There's no repositories of oak cultivars to speak of. And some, some things get cut down too. You know, if it's like, well, we used it for a while and we're all done with that. And it's not an ornamental oak tree. So it's not going to end up at Schmidt's nursery, Frank Schmidt's nursery and, and uh, so it probably won't be cultivated to any extent in that way. But if you said, well, I want to make a commercially cultivated oak trees, I tried to do it through Mark Kroutman's uh, Heritage Seedling Farm, but they couldn't accept the cyanwood because of this blanket thing about oak wilt that is on the state of Michigan. So even though it hasn't been found in my county, oak wilt, you'd have to survey the whole county, figure out where oak wilt is, be able to allow you to send a couple sticks of sign wood to mm. a nursery in California. So there's <laughs> that was yeah. that was rather disappointing for me because they had figured out how to <clears throat> cultivate you know clonally cultivate an oak and do it quick and I could probably get a few hundred of those done right away. And I was really yeah. excited about it. But then when we started researching more of the county by county. Even though someone found Oak Wilt 60 miles north of me, that's just, you know, that, that was a deal killer for that. So, no. <laughs> it's unfortunate. Yeah. There's so much like, you know, Doug Tallamy is pushing like this idea of like restoring our, our uh, yards to be more native. Right. And, but, to your point, you you can't in a lot of ways because accessing, uh, especially perennials that are native, can be really difficult. Depend like in that nursery space, like you can go to to certain places and obviously get oak trees and stuff like that. But yeah, not not in the way that uh, landscaping is traditionally done. No, and that that can be difficult. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. I do want to transition our talk a little bit because one of the things I heard you talking about recently is a potato oak understory uh, with your perennial potato project. So I, I got to ask about that. Yes. So that was the the idea, the impetus behind that is what other things could you grow under an oak canopy? And it's actually quite open. You know, there's actually quite a bit of light that penetrates through an oak canopy. It's not like sugar maples or something. So I started experimenting with true seed potatoes, but the goal was to actually find overwintering seed potatoes that would grow in the soil and then spread throughout uh, a canopy of an oak tree. So that would be kind of like the ground cover would be potatoes. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I found some like that, actually, that are rhizome natured. In other words, it's not just a potato, but it produces a lot of thick mass rhizome. So it's very competitive in a field environment. And at the same time, it produces the little berries, the little green fruit, which you could extract the seeds from. I started doing that and it, it kind of worked out pretty well. The other aspect of it was I thought, well, if I'm doing potatoes, you know, I'm kind of, you know, that, at least that's edible. But then then I thought, well, what about, you know, river cane or some other types of plants where you could have thick mats of something growing? And then when harvest season comes, you could harvest that or mow it down uh, because it's a, there's a huge resource underneath these trees that's not being used. So hmm. a ground resource. So I thought, well, what sorts of things could you grow in there? That and I have you know ferns, a type of fern, just as a ground cover. Then the other part was potatoes. Sunchokes would have worked. The issue was the predation by deer, by white-tailed deer, was too heavy uh, for the foliage to keep going. So mm. until I figure out a way around that, how's the hunting laws in Michigan? Yeah. Sounds like a, it's good, <laughs> yeah. a good time for that. Yeah. Well, I don't have. It's interesting because I've become accustomed to the deer at my farm, but there's really only a few deer that actually stay there at night. Most of them are coming in from surrounding areas to feed. So this time of year in particular, the paths really get worn. But anyway, there's a resource. That's a resource that could be used for other things underneath oak trees that you could harvest something from and make it usable for people. And, you know, I have other types of things like spring beauties or if that could be usable in some way, or you know, Solomon seal, if that is possible, edible as a perennial, or different types of asparagus in those environments. Could I have a perennial asparagus that would work in there? So there's possibilities with the idea of then when the crop comes, then that area is mowed down, flattened. You could put tarps down or shake the trees if you're using equipment. And uh, But in the meantime, you're still harvesting fruit, uh, vegetables underneath the tree. It's a second crop. So that, that's another thing we should be looking at is because really these orchards now are just pairs. You think about the orchard of today where you have just a strip, herbicide strip, and then grass in the middle and nothing else, just the fruit plant. Yeah. So to me, it's like a lost resource. You you got land there. Why can't you use that for something? Yeah. Now, why did you go with uh, potatoes instead of like groundnuts? Well, I did do. I do have groundnuts too. The groundnut thing; those were also uh, consumed by deer, uh, the foliage. But I still have some versions of them that I plan to experiment with more. The other one was. Um, Ground nuts and then also a hog peanut. Uh, oh, two, yeah. yeah. Are you breeding those to get bigger nuts or no? <laughs> the hog peanuts are so small, a little dinky. Thing. Yeah. And then the ground nuts, the ground nuts were kind of slow in that environment because it's dry where I am. And so that particular crop is more of a wetland species, mm. but it can be grown. I have it growing in a couple of spots on top of a hill, but the yields are very low in that environment. But uh, there's there's other possibilities in those areas. I suppose you could develop a, a really good 
ground nut that's more competitive against grass and so forth in these drier locations. Yeah, I really like that hog peanut idea. Yeah, the hog peanut. There's one guy, I think he's from the UK, that has selections of it. Oh my gosh, they're amazing. They're the size of lima beans. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, mine, mine. And then I did have one researcher call me about them, and I said, you know, no one has ever gone down there and dug around <laughs> <laughs> because it's just an it's so hard to find them. The the dirt hangs onto a, a like a sticky substance on the the hog peanut itself. And so you you're digging it up, it just looks like a clump of dirt. Mm. But they're different colors. They can be white, speckled, black, and kind of a mix. And the black ones are really kind of cool. But uh, again, I have moved some of that project to these grow bags so I could kind of take charge of that a little more just to see but with the with the hog peanut you're looking for more clustery type of fruiting not where it shoots out a runner and then we did grow it on a tray system in the greenhouse which worked really well basically it was like a tray on top of a tray and then the peanuts formed on the mat and then you just pop it up and then you could pick all the peanuts oh that's awesome yeah that was such out a cool actually idea. pretty good yeah and i could see where you could you could do that uh, almost commercially. There was enough peanuts there. It's almost like chufa yeah. is the same way. Chufa, you have this clump. Yeah, and they need so little light too. Yeah, yeah, you have this clump, clumpy plant. And you want it to grow out and select it over time. People probably selected for clumpiness. And then the potato, not so much clumpiness. They probably didn't want clumpiness. But with the uh, hog peanut, you, you could, there's so much variety of them mm. that you could easily develop that into a crop but you just i spent hours digging around it <laughs> trying, trying to fulfill those orders for for one, that one selection that i had and then we grew it in the greenhouse in, in another location and it didn't do as well in the shade it was a little too shady in there really so but other places where where it was shady from oaks the yields were pretty good yeah i mean i've seen them thrive in like pretty deep shade I'm oh so yeah shocked yeah yeah, it's fun to dig around in there and look for them, just to see. Yeah, the... especially your first couple times, you're like, are, are, "Am I sure this is not poison ivy?" Yeah, where because... am I? I, I <laughs> yeah. don't know, even know where it's. Where is it? And then I found out when I was doing that, there's some vole that loves those things, and they'll catch them. So you'll be digging, and all of a sudden you'll see like a whole pile of them, and I go, "Well, there they are," you know. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, better leave some for him. I'm going to take the rest. Sorry, pal. Yeah. Put you did the work. In. I'll give you something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but a lot of times they'll they'll catch those. They'll catch the ground nuts too, or not not the ground nuts, but the sunchokes. They'll catch them in these big. Those are you know prairie voles that do that. But the, the other voles, I think we're eating them and just storing them in little spots. And it may have there might be twenty or thirty in a little spot that they've catched them in during the winter. But it's a that is really a cool plant. And when I started cultivating it, I got a letter from someone that was just upset that I was even selling it. It wasn't an email. It was a letter, like with a stamp on it. And I was like, oh, this is serious. What was the problem? Well, it turns out that's one of those plants where if it gets in compost, it's hard to get rid of. So they oh. don't. And then landscapers don't want that that thing in their compost. So here I'm promoting it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Look at this. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, you think about it in terms of like full shade plants that we have for options. Like, I 
this is one of the areas that I just feel like we, yeah. both in landscaping, like especially in landscaping and in like food production, no one knows what to do with these full no. shade spaces. No, and this I mean, is like a great option for both sides. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, it can just take over an understory. That's what you and, want. You know. Yeah. yeah, it's perfect. Like, it's such a great plant. It's just, I'm surprised that people got that upset about it. One person did, but I think part of one it is, person. yeah, part of it is the landscape industry. They go, well, we don't like that. Well, no. it fixes nitrogen for trees. It does this, it does that. It's really kind of a plant, too, that grows in almost like disturbed the areas where deer used to be. You know, that's when it really spreads. And then if yeah. the deer don't or other things are not there. So me digging and digging up and looking for them, that actually increased the volume of them. Before it was confined to little areas. And when I started digging, I noticed that it spread. So the digging actually improves the performance of the hog peanut. I, I wish I could find larger ones and more clumpy ones. And that's, I have a couple that I kept that are in grow bags today. And I'm hoping I'm like, oh, maybe I can figure this. And it has a very complicated uh, sex life, uh, the way that the seed forms. You get some that it's there's a seed, and then it also underground it fertilizes itself too. So there's it's amazing little plant. But it's so funny that guy that one researcher goes, I'm looking into (laughs) because. I, like it's like some secret. Uh, don't tell anyone, but I'm looking into. <laughs> oh, okay. I, mean... <laughs> I go well. You'll find a lot of variation, and I got mine from. It was an intern, and he was up north at his cabin, and his property, his family's property, and he sent me back a bunch of them. He goes, hey, "Man, they're thick here, and you know, like along the roadsides, they're just dense, mm. and that's the type of environment that they probably would grow real thick, northern Michigan." thick foliage maybe not a lot of competition from other things and wham yeah yeah they're they're um as you know one of those things i'm like i gotta get more in-depth research on this because it's really interesting and totally totally underutilized yeah but it's on my to-do list to like dig in more on it quite literally yeah that's what you need to do yeah yeah and the other one is chufa which i know you've worked with too and i saw you posted about them maybe like six months ago on instagram and i'm like ah yeah finally somebody's talking about chufa there's such a cool little plant that you know you could really use that as a landscaping plant if you had like a diverse uh like grass type landscape or if you use like um you know native grasses you could throw chufa uh, interspersed and you know, especially if you could breed some bigger ones, that would be amazing. So I'm curious about your thoughts about kind of its potential to be bred for uh, bigger nuts. Well, yeah. So the one thing from that was, I learned from that was, first of all, the mistaken identity of chufa versus yellow nutsedge. So I have to tell people that constantly. And I'm not sure that always is successful telling people this is an annual grass, a tropical grass. It's not yellow nutsedge, which is a perennial. And so there's an aspect of that. And the yellow nutsedge is so much imbibed into the weed legislation that just the thought of selling something similar creates ripples. People don't like it, you know, but you have to tell them, no, this will die in the winter. Even if it doesn't freeze, it will die. It's tropical. But having said that, is that it's 
it is widely used and available, but it's only grown in a few regions of the world and sold. I don't think it's grown here commercially in the United States anymore. I think it's mostly like Southern Europe and yeah. Africa. Yeah, Spain is a big producer of it. And the flavor of it and the yields are so amazing. And there's oil you can buy from it. I've had it all. I love, I just love the flavor. I used to take the plants to my talks that I would give and just rinse them and leave the grass on it and set it there. And people would just consume those things. It was like coconut. And it was so delicious. And here in the United States, the only use of that particular plant is wildlife food. So it's used for- Turkeys love them. Yeah, yeah, ducks and turkey and so forth. So there's this aspect of it. It's actually quite difficult to raise at my farm because of that. Um, and there's also mice and voles that eat the, eat the tubers quite heavily. But the idea of it is that you have this high energy crop that's just has a great flavor, has be extracted for oil that you could probably commercially harvest and clean it. It probably has, there's all the technology for it, but no one has ever really stepped up on that. So my, because it doesn't flower and it doesn't produce a flower stalk or rarely, I guess, I, I've never seen it, but my idea was to select for uh shorter time period for harvest. So I found some that were shorter period, but I'm not sure if that's an actual varietal name mm. or what, because it's normally, chufa isn't sold under a variety. It might be, there might be black or white or something else or round, but there's no varietal names that I'm, that I'm familiar with, but I know there are some. Yeah. For me, it's whatever I can get here in the United States and grow it. There's a few hobbyists that grow it, but it has it's probably the lowest key <laughs> root crop that I'm aware of. No one knows yeah. knows what it is. Like I said, I saw you post about it. I'm like, oh man, I don't think I've ever seen anyone else talk about chufa. Yeah. Um, and and one of my thoughts is like it's so hard to clean that like it mm. it really makes a good candidate. And I say this as not an advocate for this system, but hydroponic systems. Yeah. Because of the fact that it it is such a pain to clean. I really wonder, yeah. and I know nothing about hydroponics because I, I'm not a fan of it. Yeah, I'm not either. But, but yeah, given that, the, the work it needs, I imagine that'd probably be a best system for it. Probably, yeah. I think part of it might be, yeah, that the hydroponic thing does come, it does make you think about it because it's so efficient at cranking out <laughs> things. Cranking out and numbers. cleaning too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I could see where people would probably want to do that. I don't know if that would affect. I'm sure me. if you tried it, you'd be the first person to do it. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know why you couldn't couldn't do that. It does seem yeah. like one of those crops. You know, you're growing. If you're going to deep space or going to space, going to the moon. Well, we're going to try growing chufa because it's it's such a delicious, high oil, high energy crop. And yeah, it's grass. And it grows it's quick. A, yeah. Oh yeah, it grows super fast. You could really, even in our climates, get two crops in one year. Really? Uh, that I think so. Yeah. Especially if you're able to kind of play with the season, the you know, the bookends of the seasons kind of yeah. extend the season yeah. a little bit. I think you could. But yeah, so your thought is basically what we need to do is try to accelerate the growing cycle to get a better 
product out of those? Well, the the one thing was then I thought with Chufa, there was two things. One is the usability of it. I mean, really, how usable is that particular little Mm -hmm. tuber? You could probably narrow the window for the ripening period for it and use existing seed sources. You wouldn't have to. There's a couple, two or three places here in the United States that sell the seeds, and that's what I did. But over the last couple decades, I started separating them out from early ripening to late ripening and then growing them out. This year, I decided to grow them out again and just test the, you know, the growth patterns of them and just see Mm -hmm. if there's any difference. But the the issue then becomes, okay, you get, you yank them out of the ground and you have all these and then you rinse them. Now what? Are you just going to eat them like popcorn? Uh, I do. But then I thought, geez, you know, you can buy those little oil extractors. So I may try just a hand press oil thing just to see what level of oil is in them. Mm. Because it's it seems like it could work pretty easily. It's it's just one of those crops. It's almost like um, it reminds me of garlic in some ways. The the way that um, you know you get the little cloves and then the yeah you press them. I could see that. I do want to ask about one other really niche crop that I you are one of the only people I've seen growing it, and that's the uh, tuber's pea, or uh, I, and I'm terrible at the Latin names. Yeah, Lathyrus tuberosus. Yes. So I've seen people grow them in France. I've tried growing them, never had any luck. Yeah. But I've heard the flavor's incredible, and I've seen you post about them at least once. So I'm curious about your experiences with it, if you have any thoughts about it being an actual viable crop in the future. I think it it will. The flavor is amazing, first of all. That's what I've heard, yeah. Yeah, and there is some variation. There is a, I know there's a breeding project from some company that's working on them, and other people have experimented with them. But the one thing was, because they're in the pea family, concerned about the neurotoxins. It'd be the same way as if you ate the highway pea. They're concerned, do those tubers contain any of the neurotoxins? And almost everyone I know will say, no, no, it doesn't. But I don't know if it's been tested. But you can mm. certainly, it, it's um, people have never gotten ill that I'm aware of from eating it. But the um, the seeds might be might be bad, but the tubers yeah. are very crispy. They taste just like a pea. It's just amazing how much of a pea like flavor they have. The yields are kind of low from what I've seen, and I still have one selection that I keep. But one of the things that I think is a failure about it is its ability to tolerate heat. It tends to go dormant in July after it flowers and sets seeds. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know it's a, more of an alpine plant. And so that might be why, you know, it's been just existing in a very cool climate for many thousands of years. And uh, yeah. people have grown them and eaten them and enjoyed them, but there's never been anyone that's done anything with it as far as, oh, this is how much you'll get. Yeah. If you do it every now and then, you'll see the seeds for sale here and there, but it's it's really a rare crop plant. Yeah, I think I got my seeds from like Croatia. Really? <laughs> like yeah. That, that was the only way. I put, and I was like, I can't believe these made it through customs. Like, yeah. Nobody checked. Like they didn't actually put them through like as they should have done. It was just you know a typical little envelope with some seeds in it, and they just yeah. showed up in my house. But yeah, like they're they're difficult to find. 
I grew them out and they vined out a little bit. They look just like a pea. Yeah. Uh, and I got them to about two feet and they just kind of stopped growing. Yeah. That's and kind of... that was it. And I was like, okay. So I couldn't quite figure out what I was doing wrong or maybe if it was the soil did you, type. Did you or... dig up, did you dig up the tubers that formed after they stopped? Yeah. They were tiny. Yeah. Um, they were like not even the size of my thumb. Yeah. I think that's typical actually. Yeah. yeah and I don't know the pictures I posted I don't remember if those were more than one-year-old tubers or not, but a couple of people said, oh, those are pretty large, actually. So yeah. that's a pretty good size. But I think the image is deceptive that I put up. It wasn't that big. But the flavor the flavor was very good with those. It was really amazing. I've heard historically they were uh, very popular as like a very high-end dish in France. Oh, really? In some parts of Europe but they never really caught on as something that could be grown at scale. So they just yeah. never really became part of the diet. Yeah. There's another one like that called chervil, turnip, turnip rooted chervil. And I tried mm -hmm. to grow it several, several times. And um, it's more of an alpine plant, but it's a, mm -hmm. I guess it's considered a biennial, maybe a perennial in some cases, if it doesn't flower, I planted a bunch of that this spring but it takes two seasons to go through the cycle to germinate it. But that was one that the the mice got into those in the greenhouse. They seem to love them. I don't, you know, I usually control mice in the greenhouse, but they could not stop eating those. But there, the idea was then, this was before carrots and before sugar, really, to any degree. So it was very considered a very sweet crop. And mm. so people's palates were different back then. They really love chervil, chervil, chervil rooted turnip, and it's in the parsley family. And uh, the one, the one few, the few that I ate were really delicious. But it, I think those types of plants, maybe they could be cultivated more. It's an example of you know maybe I'll try to grow out more of these to see if I can get a population of them started and then go from there. Yeah, there's so much opportunity and potential in yeah. crops because of, you know, humans have done so much domestication. You know, you really wonder oh, how much yeah. the landscape looked, what it actually looked like maybe, you know, 30,000 oh. years ago, 40, you know, in terms of <laughs> yeah. what was being domesticated and we lost or yeah. how different the crops that we don't think of as domestic, you know, like walnuts, like how, how much breeding was done to make walnuts what they are now, which we still don't think of as domesticated, but yeah. in reality, like seeing as that we were not the thing that those evolved for they evolved for dinosaurs with much bigger jaws yeah. that could like just crack them like nothing you know you wonder what those must have looked like you know 10 20,000 years ago yeah and and how selective planting and so on has completely altered what the landscape looks like today even though we don't see it yeah that's true that you're really looking at there's there's two parts of that actually it's the the individuals doing that selection over time is kind of an upper echelon of the scientific community. So it's a very narrow window of people doing that. It's not the public at large. Flavor may at least not, today, yeah. Yeah, flavor, yeah, flavor may not play play a role. Nutrition, probably not play a role. And um it's kind of like we're doing it for the benefit of the farmer and for the corporations. I hate to say that, but certainly there's the benefit of the animals and the people. But that's kind of low on the list. So there was a thing about asparagus a few years ago, and I read 
they were breeding a new asparagus variety. And they said, this time we're serving thousands of asparagus uh, to students and other people on this university campus to see what they think about these different selections. I was like, well, finally, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what you need to do. You taste yeah. test things. And that's another thing that's probably been lost is flavor. Uh, and that's probably what's driving a lot of these new crops is flavor. Like, oh, man, this really tastes great or different than what I'm used to. And this is true mm. with the apple breeding. You'll see this now. The cider folks are going, you know, that's fine. You want to grow these other apples. What about flavor for cider? What about flavor mm. in general? Can it be more complex? Can the apples be smaller and more condensed? Can they have more nutrition? And the answer is yeah. yes, they can have all that. But no one else is going to do that. You're going to have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to say that, but it's true. Yeah, no, it's, I mean... To go back to the example I was just talking about, you know, 30,000 years ago when humans were messing around with these plants, plant selective, you know, oh, the the walnuts from this tree are much easier to crack open. Yeah. Let's go plant a whole bunch of them. Yeah. And how that, you know, that ripple effect throughout history. That's how we have evolved our food systems and yes. the ecosystems around us is this tasted good, so we should grow more of it. Yes. And, you know, it tasted better than the other ones or whatever. Yeah. And, um, we don't do that anymore. Our food no. is isolated the way it's produced and totally. grown and of of uh, how we raise it. And, you know, you've brought this idea of like scion wood, which is great that we can do this thing where we can graft a tree yeah. so that we have the exact genetic thing that mm -hmm. we grew someplace else. But the downside is that it's not evolving with the, the world around it, the, no. the bugs and all that stuff. No, and, it's not. Yeah, exactly. It's not. And that's another fault of plant breeding. There was a... <laughs> There was this thing on LinkedIn a few years, uh, a few months ago about a book on plant breeding. And um, they had published the first page or two of it. And it was so weird because I felt it was very condescending to the public, but no one else said anything. And I don't want, I don't like to get in arguments uh, with folks, but it just seemed like we are plant breeders. We know, why would you want a career in plant breeding? Well, this is what we do. We, they have to tell. And I was like, boy, it just seems like you're you're treating the, the public like children. And you're you're it's so condescending. You know, I'm like, it just it sounded bad to me. Now maybe it was just me that picking that up. I don't know, but I I really have a feeling that if you have to explain your occupation to the public at large over and over again, saying, I am important. I am a plant breeder, then you got a problem right there. And it should be, you know, this this whole idea then revolves around this these industries that are so locked in. It's difficult to do it. It only can be done on the level of the individual, at least initially, to create these, community. Yeah, yeah, or community level. You know, I love the experimental farm network and all these things where these bringing people together. And I do appreciate anyone that does anything like that. And then some, you know, obviously not all universities are like that. There's some that are grabbing the, you know, the bull by the horn, so to speak, and putting it out there and bringing in people and getting more farmers involved, because that's the type of revolution we're going to need to make it through this next hundred years, for sure. Yeah. This is critical. Next hundred years. And tree crops, 
you know, there it's not wheat we're dealing with here. It's trees. <laughs> yeah. So get going on it now. <laughs> yeah. Time is not on our side on this not one. Not really, no. And I'm old. Uh, <laughs> Ken, so you're still, I, I know you had closed up for a while. Uh, it seems like you're kind of open, quasi open now for business still. Yeah. Could you, if for folks that are interested, they, they hear about all the cool stuff you're growing, they want to get some, you know, what's going on? Can we, can we follow you on social media? All that good stuff. Yeah. So I still maintain the Instagram, my Instagram account. I kept that going. I offer tours. People can either buy a tour or they can come for free. It's free will. I have a lot of people coming this fall visiting the farm and allows them to taste test things just to see what it's like and take a look at mature plantings of many things. So that that's really what I've been more or less focusing on is educational. And, and I'll probably... Um, I still sell the seeds and the science of some of the varieties for now, but I'd rather just focus on education. I'm trying to, I'm doing a couple workshops and things this fall, and one of them's in the Detroit area that's uh, going to involve some cooking or something. I don't know. But the idea is that people can taste test things and comment on them in a public uh type of arena so it should be interesting but the the whole idea then with my farm is it's so much more enjoyable for me to show people and talk to people one-on-one -on -one there and um i really like that more than anything i do i like to write and i like to um so i recommend people sign up for my newsletter because that's kind of my extension i spend a couple hours every day writing that ends up in a newsletter. And I also have started uh, doing music. So I'm kind of putting together some musical interpretations of things. And so that's kind of my new, my new thing. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's awesome. Uh, I really enjoy following you on social media because like I yeah. said, the stuff you post about is, uh, you know, not something you're going to find in most no. places. No. And I think that's really cool because as much as like my generation, we're all, I think it's becoming much more popular to be interested in these types of things. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of examples of what they look like 30, 40, 50 years out. So having what you have is so important for people to say, so this is what it looks like. Yeah. And these yeah. are the things that maybe you didn't think about when you started it, but you should have, Yeah. you know, in terms of planting choice and That's true. all those yeah. things. Yeah. Cause you'll see things. Wow. That, that turned out. I know I do this all the time. I go, wow, that, that turned out a lot better than I thought it would be. And frequently, I've given things to people, and and they would send me back images, and I go, well, that looks way better at your place than mine. You know, <laughs> that's amazing how much progress you've made. You know, and I think a lot of it is just people's attention is more focused on it. Yeah. Well, Ken, this has been fantastic. Hey, I, I right. appreciate your time. And uh, I feel like we didn't even touch a lot of stuff I wanted to talk about. So we'll, we'll definitely have to chat again. Hey, sounds good. We'll pick a topic. All right. Thanks, Ken. Hey, thank you. Bye-bye.